Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. Robert Henley, who reports on leading political and economic issues for public radio, salon, the chief leader, and other news organizations, has joined us many times on this show to discuss the news behind the news. And now he is also one of my colleagues here at WBAI because he's hosting a new morning show called What's Going On? He's also the author of a recent book called Stuck Nation, Can the United States Change Course on Our History of Choosing Profits Over People? It's published by Democracy at Work. And I'm very pleased to welcome Bob Henley back to our show now. Hi, Bob. Hi, Leonard. You know, I know that I've published a book with the way you introduce it. Uh That reminds me, Mike. (laughs) You wouldn't have known better. Yeah, well, I like talking to authors of books that I find interesting, and it's a very good book. There's just so much to talk about. But um, I was thinking about uh, something in the New York Times just yesterday, um, considering what I've been seeing on television. Uh, The Times reports that New York remains among the safest large cities in America. Uh, And, you know, we've been seeing all these shootings on TV, um, but it says homicides last year, um, there were 488 uh, homicides last year, uh, and that's a a big drop from the early 1990s when the city saw more than 2,000 murders in a year. So so what's going on here? There's this atmosphere of unease and despair in many parts of the city, which is tangible. And you see it in the subways. Uh, you see it. Well, we'll get to the whole business of homelessness sure. in the subways. But um, is it just that uh, we, we get different kinds of news coverage these days? Well, let's um, stipulate that we have lived through, in short order, an insurrection, which I believe is still ongoing, and a pandemic mass death event where at least 2,000 Americans die every day. So that's the preamble. Mm -hmm. Um, It is true. So there's a sense of crisis in the air. Yes, absolutely. And it is all relative. So when I started doing this um, like uh, decades ago, um, it is true that you had this uh, over 2,000 homicides a year in New York Mm -hmm. City, much of it driven uh, by the crack, crack epidemic, um, you had um, this kind of uh, and also deterioration, you know, coming out of the 1970s when Ford uh, famously told President Ford told New York to drop dead. There was this fiscal crisis. The city lost control of some of its prize assets like the subway system. Um, the uh, education became the, pro- you know, Albany got control of everything, kind of like a plantation situation because New York City had lost control of its finances. It was punished and still to some degree is. Mm-hmm. So that's that's the background. And then we went through a period where a couple of things were happening at the same time. We had this decision made by Mario Cuomo uh, to uh, uh, basically close uh, mental health facilities on a huge scale. Uh, was that Rivera just to in, save money? Well, no, it was It was uh, Geraldo Rivera in his incarnation that was more endearing as an investigative journalist, uh, did important reporting that showed uh, people being restrained and, and, and folks with mental health challenges being brutalized. The response uh, from the state was to close down and, and always – the notion was that the cover story was we were going to create community-based, community-based healthcare, uh, mental health system that never materialized to any large degree, 
And so that so you have that happening. And so but wait, wait, also, so, so they shut yeah. down the, the mental health facilities or, or cut back on them at, right. at, uh, in Bellevue and Kings All County and other hospitals. Yeah, actually, across the country, this mm-hmm. caught on across the country. In fact, the reason why I know about this is because uh, writing for the chief leader for the last several years, civil servants were in the throes of this. So what ended up happening was across the country um, and historians, if uh, if we get to write a history, will be brutal about this. We let the mentally ill primarily uh, be uh, find sanctuary in transit facilities in libraries in the street, because at the same time in New York City, we unleash the dogs of the real estate industry who have been running and still run the city of New York. And that is that they place bets on pretty much many of the city council and citywide candidates. They control and operate it much like Tony Soprano. They run the town. And so we saw affordable housing, uh, things that people could live in, single uh, resident occupancy hotels, all of that, particularly during the Bloomberg era, was just crushed um, while we made way for luxury housing to have the multinational wealthy visit between Christmas and New Year's. (laughs) And so we replicated in the likeness and image and what Mike Bloomberg liked. And so in the process, working people were squeezed out. And even civil servants that I serve and write for, and the chief leader, ended up having to move farther and farther outside of New York City. So that, and that's the context. And at the same time, the federal government totally fell down on the job of controlling weapons, even the assault weapons ban that had been passed uh, during a Democratic administration. That fell by the wayside. So you had this huge flood of of guns because of the protection racket run by the NRA and a mental health crisis at the same time. And then just on the side, a nice pandemic and insurrection for good measure. Well, New York does have strict gun control laws, but that doesn't seem to matter. Obviously, you can just go out of the city and and buy a gun. But what about the, getting back to the mentally ill? Um, uh, we, we see a number of repeat offenders. Uh, so what what happens? They, they especially some of the ones on the subways, uh, they they, um, they commit a crime and then they're freed, even though they're mentally well, ill. Well, so here's, uh, and it's so important here to parse it out because one of the things that happens is that you have um, people that are indigent or that were in fragile situations, support living facilities, living places that fall out from underneath them. And then there isn't any kind of social safety net. The uh, shelters themselves um, are, are often places that you wouldn't want to stay. And so thousands of people um, who really just have mental health issues or addiction issues seek the subway out of sanctuary. Now, the problem is that the subway is um, is an industrial place. Now, I um, worked for the railroad. They were Lackawanna Railroad at one time. So I understand railroads. And so that's a place where heavy metal objects going through at relatively quick speed uh, are in close quarters. And so homeless folks, folks with mental health crisis, if they're in the subway on a platform, especially if you think of places like uh, Park Row, where it's very narrow, that's a really dangerous place to be. And unfortunately, what's happened is we have approached the idea that the subway is similar to the uh, and given the civil liberty rights uh, to homeless folks in the subway system as they enjoy, and rightfully so, 
in places of public assembly or on the street. And so that's a real problem because the subway is an industrial place. It's not a place for us to warehouse people. The Times points out that uh, we see people struggling with mental illness and homelessness uh, in Times Square, uh, where the, 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 I'm quoting them, where the hallmarks of drug addiction are present at all hours. Uh, well, if, if it's easy enough for me to spot it, isn't it easy enough for uh, people working for the city to spot it? Uh, can't something, uh, do the laws prevent us from, from uh, bringing those people in? Or are we just trying to save money or hoping so that it's they all OD? Of all of it, all of it. I mean, part of it is there is a law called Kendra's Law, which is uh, gives the city the capability of basically getting someone committed to mental uh, health facility uh, if they are a harm to themselves or others. The standard for that has become very high, and the city is very reluctant to do that. And then um, at the same time, you have a situation where you've had really there, there's no facility. So you have a combination, a confluence of the, uh, the abuse and neglect of endless tax cutting for the super rich, starving the social safety net. And then you have the end result, which is homeless folks, many of them um, mentally ill. And so they end up being warehoused in a place like Rikers. So that becomes, if you will, the place for uh, the folks with mental health challenges. And, and now so, people are talking about changing the setup at Rikers because of all the problems there. Right. And so but the, the bottom line here is that this happens in a society. The fundamental problem is the crisis of late stage vulture capitalism, which nobody wants to say we'll watch everything fall apart and we won't utter that for fear that I guess we won't get an MSNBC. I don't know. <laughs> but that's what the crisis is. You have a society running on scarcity. Look at the response to the pandemic. It's all been the precondition precondition for the pandemic has been scarcity, scarcity of masks. We don't have enough scarcity of tests. We don't have enough scarcity of time to recuperate. There's not enough time to get back to work. That's the theme. And so the same thing was happening before this pandemic. Consider that the average life expectancy of Americans was a decline for three years in a row. The last time that happened was before the last great mass death event back during the First World War. Now, we're focusing on New York City mostly, uh, obviously one of the most important cities in the world. But uh, I just read that the capital of your state, you live in New Jersey, Trenton. Yes. Uh, according to a 50-state ranking of America's state capitals by Wall Wallet Hub, Trenton ranks 50th, dead last in terms of the quality of life and well-being of the families that live there. New Jersey, not uh, the Deep South or some other places where we assume uh, there is a government neglect? Well, so what's fascinating about this, and that was, uh, I cited that in a piece for Insider NJ, and, and one of the things, this was for Martin Luther King Day, um, I, I observed that New Jersey, uh, like New York, um, has this, um, baked into it, this intense economic uh, wealth uh, race-based inequality. Hmm. And so it, it's something that New Jersey, up for a very long time, had the highest per capita death rate from COVID 
in the world, Leonard. It's still in has, the world. It's still the the highest of the three states in this area. I right. think now, and Connecticut so, and, so, and New York are, are doing much better than so, New Jersey. Uh, well, and so one of the things they'll say, like Governor Murphy will say, hmm, we must make a commitment to the racial health disparities revealed by this pandemic, indeed. And yet it continues. And so that's part of that situation in Trenton that happened where you have under the gold dome, you have legislators enriching themselves of both parties by controlling the political economy in a gross way. And the media reporting about it in a breathless way to reinforce the greatness of our elected leaders. And so there we are. And so the city where it's all based, which, by the way, was a great historical place where much has happened mm. and many great individuals have been born and, and risen to prominence and made a difference in America. And yet the capital itself reflects the gross inequality that late stage vulture capitalism counts on. And uh, it's a study indicated that Households in Trenton live below the poverty. Twenty-eight percent of the households in Trenton live below the poverty line, and another thirty-three percent were what the United Ways describes as asset limited, limited income constrained employed households living week to week. So we're talking about a lot of people just struggling yeah, to make ends meet. That's what they call. Uh, that's called Alice, uh, mm-hmm. Doctor Stephanie Hoops, uh, somebody that someone should give a MacArthur grant to, came up with this. This. This is such an important analysis, right? And it's something I'm proud to say actually came out of New Jersey, North Jersey, United Way, um, actually in Morris County, which is a wealthy county. They were getting calls uh, several years ago from people who needed short-term economic relief, like the water was turned off and there was some catastrophic thing that happened. And when they did the research, they found out that these were people, they were hidden, hidden poverty, living in uh, places where, by the aggregate, we thought these are well-off communities with nicely manicured cul-de-sacs. And in them were elderly people living in abject poverty, eating cat food. Mm. Yes, in New Jersey. So they figured, hey, there's something about New Jersey. Let's figure out a way of looking at the actual cost of living. So they factored in your utilities, your child care, your shelter, your taxes. And they came up with this asset-limited, income-constrained, but for good measure, employed. And that's where we see much of America. That's where the growth has been. That has been where you have people living week to week. They may call themselves and see themselves as aspiring middle class. We do like to call ourselves middle class because, well, it makes us feel better. But the truth is they're working poor. And these ranks have been growing. It's part of the precondition to the pandemic. That's why the death toll is so high. This is a nation struggling. That's why Congressman Crowley is private citizen Crowley because um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez was running in a district where this had happened, Leonard. This is a secret sauce the MSNBC talking heads don't get. The population had shifted. There were more people struggling week to week than were getting by. And she understood it. And that's why she's a congresswoman now. Well, you're talking about in New York City. We'll get to that in just a moment. My guest is Bob Henley. Uh, He's a regular contributor to this show, and this is WBAI New York 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. We've been talking about uh, the terrible situation in Trenton, but uh, I think most New Yorkers know that we have all sorts of similar pockets all over this city in every borough. Uh, So, uh, and and, uh, 
You mentioned uh, wealthy people uh, living here for just uh, sometimes just weeks. We have those terrible, huge, tall, skinny buildings going up that are <laughs> that are uh, largely empty, but they're being put up <laughs> as, as uh, places where people, where um, uh, millionaires from other countries can can uh, park some of their money. Right. Exactly right. And that's and often what happens is um, you'll see situations where there's one uh, one of these little uh, cigarette tipperella, whatever you want to call the building. Um, they, they are so ugly. These, Why would anybody want to live in them? Well, because you feel above everyone else. Uh-huh. And anyway, they're about investment vehicles. It's not about living there. It's about long term holding your capital in a way that beyond the tax man, Leonard, that's what it's all about. I'm sure you have an LLC. All people of accomplishment must have an LLC. I don't even know what LLC stands for, so <laughs> I work at WBAI. <laughs> That's right. Those are your call letters, right? No, but I mean, one of the things that happens in this is that there was a, a place, uh, I think on Park Row, where they put one of these up, and then just accidentally, it looks like some old buildings, they got weak, and then they fell down. Mm. That's another thing that happens, blockbusting. And I don't mean the abstract thing, pushing around paper and redlining. I mean, you're putting the damn building up that shouldn't be built, and because of what you do, you end up taking out the other buildings next door just by accident. Oops. Oh, I hate when that happens. Now, uh, we, we talked a bit about gun violence. Uh, there's been a lot of talk about uh, our new mayors uh, uh, being under severe pressure to address the crisis of gun violence, among other things, and the, uh, the, the killings of, of uh, people and uh, police officers. Um, how much of the problem is something he inherited from de Blasio? Wow. In 50 words or less. Uh, well, I you can go say, on as long as you want on this. This right, is right. important stuff. Yeah, it is. It is. And one of the things that I just also um, just want to pause because it's such a, a shift. Because I was working before I came to get organized for this broadcast, I was working through this horrible story about these three firefighters in Baltimore that died, mm-hmm. um, that gave their lives. Uh, a lieutenant, uh, a female firefighter, and a, 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 a male firefighter. And processing that for me uh, is, is hard. And so the thought of the civil servants uh, who I serve through the chief leader writing about this and realizing what happens to a household when someone that is a 22-year-old officer that that ended up uh, dying in his, his 27-year-old colleague. When, when that happens, um, I think it's so important just to drill down to appreciate and, and meditate a bit on the loss because it is, it, it's of such great consequence in moment. It tears through families. It, it has generational consequence. And when that happens, it means that the best of us is dying um, because they had a desire to serve. And they had a picture of us that we don't yet have ours, of ourselves about collectively pulling together and trying to make each other's life better. So I just had to say that because Mm -hmm. I don't think um, we we focus enough on that. And so hopefully out of these tragedies can become, can come some resolve, right? That we could carry some little bit of the inspiration they had in their young hearts to make the world better. Um, As far as whose fault it is, I don't think that, you know, I think that Mayor de Blasio, um, we did see that, he was trying to navigate this world in the post 
George Floyd context where the status quo was all of a sudden upended. It should have been upended a long time ago. Um, and he was also dealing with a situation where the social order was being put to the test because of the scarcity I described. And you're in the middle of this pandemic uh, overlaid with this racial injustice tide that would no longer uh, was not going to continue with the status quo and had to push back. All of that was happening at the same time. And the problem was that he was not really a change agent. You know, that's the other thing, too. He he was hampered. And, and um, Mayor Adams may have the same problem. These mayors in this period of time of uh, New York City's decrepit democracy, when such a small percentage of people actually turn out, it's very important that these people that are blessed or cursed with the opportunity to win an election, understand that it's no mandate because such a small percentage of people are actually engaged in politics at all. And so I think that kind of haunted de Blasio. I think he spent a lot of time raising money. And because he did not uh, have the wealth that Bloomberg did, uh, Bloomberg could do all kinds of things at the snap of his fingers because he had a vast fortune that he put to work while he was mayor for all the priorities that he wanted. And so de Blasio was like kind of like working class by comparison. So he had to raise the money. So he got himself into all kinds of situations where got too close to real estate interests, spent an awful lot of time during our press conferences explaining one really messed up ethical choice after another. That stuff takes a toll when you find and, and do you think it's the, led to his decision finally not to run for governor. I think so. I think also that as a calculus looking at, I mean, I, I think a large part of the, his desire to run was that in this arena, if that's all you know how to do. It's not like he has locksmithing to fall back on. I mean, I'm a carpenter, right? So <laughs> if something goes wrong, I got that. And from time to time, depending on where I was with whatever media outlet, I've done that. So these folks that are a creature of the public space, that's what they do. And he had a considerable overhang, which I still think he has, of legal debts uh, related to the compromise situation that he was in. So the only way to keep power flowing towards you is look like you're, you've got, you're not a lame duck because you're still flying. Um, the reality is that um, I think he saw that Governor Hochul's in a very strong position. Um, she is being challenged, I think, effectively from the left with public advocate Jumani Williams. Jumani has had a- And from um, the right, if a Long right. Island uh, Democrat. Well, right, so but for, true. But, from, but for the purposes of de Blasio trying to eke out a space, a little social ecology niche where he could make a viable run to, to get some money going for a while, he didn't have that running room. And so I think that it was probably wise for him. And then he, I think also he wants to take um, what he, he did, some things that were effective. I mean, there were some things that he did. We didn't get to talk about this, but um, there were things that history will judge kindly that he did. Standing up with the help of DC 37 and Henry Garrido, the the feeding uh, system in the city. So people uh, we didn't have people go hungry. That could have happened so easily. Um, there were things that the city did that historians will be much kinder than we are right now because his faults are so much more present with us. Now, as far as to what I think the tone that Eric Adams has taken, I have to tell you, he did a very good job. I saw him on Morning Joe uh, with that first kind of almost uh, a majestic appearance with the flags behind him, a phalanx of flags, the orange and blue, um, and real command of, of what he wanted to say. And when he talked about gun violence, what I was impressed with was a reference to the streams that we had to deal with. And he talked about the police issue being of suppression of guns and taking guns off the street as being but one stream. 
And that was impressive because then he talked about the other streams, which include the federal government's failure. And even you might say because of the way they suck up to the gun lobby, promotion of gun distribution. Let's call it that. Like the Republicans are about gun distribution. It's not like regulation. They proliferate. And so then he also mentioned um, at the end of his seven minute segment that we had to deal with the fact of there was this the stream of 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 the disadvantage that was the result of decades of racial discrimination in terms of opportunity and education. So that to me. That's solid. And they did that in eight minutes. Um, you know, I think that that's uh, hopeful. So I'm at this point. I mean, I'm the thing with the cryptocurrency and all the rest of it. That's not great. But the fundamental mm-hmm. message and the proof is going to be, can he walk this line of street cop informed by um, a desire to reform the police and not revert back to racial profiling, which he himself rose to prominence fighting as an insurgent police captain. In response to the the now uh, deaths of two police officers uh, in who were killed in Manhattan, he called for immediate changes to add police officers to city streets to remove guns and for help from the courts and state legislators, uh, uh, state lawmakers in the months ahead. Um, but uh, is is that pretty much toothless? Well, um, here's the thing. And today uh, there was a follow up. Like one of the things he had talked about was the importance of having a police force that lives in the community. And so he that was um, the, one of the one of the principal points he talked about, because it's been observed uh, that there is if you have people that are policing a community that leave it. Right. And just a way of background. New York State, New York City permits uh, New York City police officers to live in uh, Suffolk, Orange, Rockland, Westchester. I may be forgetting some, but Mm -hmm. generally they can live in the radius. And that was a kind of that came as a result of the fact that New York City has been underpaying its police historically. Um, In fact, one of the stories you could do as a as a reporter is um, usually they call it selling the unborn, the PBA paid very low uh, negotiated contracts where they sacrificed really the starting salary for police officers. It wasn't uncommon. You'd see the tabs do this story. I'm sure you remember them. You know, a rookie with two young children could be on food stamps. Mm-hmm. Um, and so as a consequence of this, the the bargain was, well, OK, we're not going to pay you what you're getting paid in suburban. And remember, where in New Jersey, police officers outside of urban areas will get to six figures very early on, like, you know, like three quarters into their tenure. Uh, Port Authority police officers, all of them get paid much more. So that's that's kind of like the bargain that's developed here uh, where they get to live outside of of the city. And so that takes a little bit of the pressure off of wages. That said, there's no doubt that it does develop into an us and them. And one of the best points, and this is something that um, Adams brings to this debate, which has, is new. It's important to remember that police officers under New York State law, as sworn peace officers, are on duty all the time. That's one of the obligations that they have to have. So in essence, if you have police officers that are uh, working in the city and then go home, you lose the benefit of two-thirds of your police force if they are commuters mm-hmm. because they have incidental coverage when they go to the grocery store, when they're going to mosque, church, or wherever. They provide another layer. So that's a really smart observation. Now, the reality, as you point out, is that's something that um, he is not going to be able to do because of the existing 
political and labor alignment. But here's a creative thought. Talk about uh, the National Credit Union uh, offering uh, advantageous mortgages to um, young men and women who are police officers who make a commitment to the city. I mean, there's all kinds of ways to do this, right? You're listening to London Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. My guest on today's London Lopate at Large is Robert Henley, who um, reports on leading political and economic issues for public radio. He's a colleague here at WBAI for Salon, the chief leader in other news organizations, and the author of a book called Stuck Nation, Can the United States Change Course in our, on Our History of Choosing Profits Over People? You can uh, uh, access uh, his information about him at stucknation.com, at muckrack.com, Bob Hanley, at thechiefleader.com. But Bob, before we get back to our conversation, I'd like to take just a, a moment to ask our listeners for their support sure. for BAI. We're asking everyone. Can I help? Yes, please. We're, <laughs> we're asking everyone who, t- well, you're a colleague here, and you also have have a long history in public radio, so you know that WBAI is a unique situation because we rely 100% on our listeners. We don't do funding credits as uh, a station I used to work for does, which are really just ads in disguise. We just rely on our listeners, and that puts us in a bind, especially uh, during times like this when uh, money is tight for an awful lot of people. Uh, we, we appreciate that not everyone is in the position to contribute to the station or anything else right now because they're uh, reeling financially from the pandemic. But uh, I would hope that segments like this one where we can discuss underreported news stories for an hour demonstrate why independent media are still an, a critical service. Uh, I would like to say also, um, I would uh, to uh, I have five free books of democracy at work. Uh, oh. Democracy um, I was right, stuck nation brought up by democracy at work. Um, I would be glad to. Uh, to uh, any the the first five people, assuming we'll be all right, it's for the phones. We only hope uh, to support the station and do it in the name of this program. I will make sure to me personally. I will mail it out to you because I. I well, we have to have a limit on that. How about for seventy five dollar uh, memberships? <clears throat> okay, that's a good idea. We could one hundred seventy five, but whatever. It's so important because, quite frankly, without the the big tent, the tower of power, as it were, WBAI. Mm. We wouldn't be having this conversation. In fact, I think it's a fair argument that, um, for instance, Mayor Eric Adams, I don't know that he would be mayor because the first place that he was heard regularly and in long format radio Hmm. uh, was WBAI when he was talking about the need for reform within the police department. Meanwhile, Curtis Sliwa, his opponent, was a colleague of mine at WNYC. (laughs) I'm not going to say anything about him as a colleague, but... uh, (laughs) 
No, I mean, I he guess wasn't loved. Here, <laughs> right. Right. I mean, one of the things is that all the things that you're hearing, all the issues of the day about just how rabid the right wing could be. If you feel kind of prescient, uh, when you think about it, you heard these issues discussed and debated. You know, the president got out of Afghanistan finally. Well, for as long as I can remember, that's what we people here were saying. So if you. Well, now we're going to get into Ukraine. <laughs> yeah, right. So, I mean, I guess it's really critical now because we, it sounds like, from where I can see, that the station itself has been somewhat stabilized. And what we're really trying to do is also pay ahead the rent. It's like, uh, what's it, $14,000, $17,000, $17,000 a month for the transmitter. And, well, WBAI has just six days left to reach its goal of $100,000 to pay for its transmitter rent for the year. We're currently at sixty. So we need 40,000 more in the next four days. And as I said, uh, the number to call is 212-209-2950, or you can go to online to WBAI.org, and we hope you'll make that contribution in the name of Leonard Lopate at large. But uh, it's, you know, free speech radio costs money. And <laughs> right. <laughs> And I'm so glad that we can have people like you uh, as not, not only as guests on our show, but also doing shows. And I, I want to talk about some of the other things that you've been writing about recently, sure. like um, the retirement of Fire Commissioner Daniel Negro, right. uh, effective February 16th. He's been there for 40 years in the fire department. Right. Uh, and... Uh, uh, Mayor Adams commended his work in rebuilding the department, which suffered a uh, catastrophic loss on 9-11, when 343 department members, including several men in its upper ranks and dozens of officers, died as, in the rescue efforts for the right. World Trade Center. And, and on previous shows, we have talked about how that situation continues all these years later. 20 years right. later, we're still, we still have people suffering. Die, right, right. Um, and so I guess um, it's important to know that actually I believe now we're at a point, maybe it happened in the anniversary, that more firefighter, uh, I think it's two, close to 300 firefighters have died from 9-11 World Trade Center illnesses. Uh, more broadly, far more people, civilians and people that lived in lower Manhattan, people that worked for other organizations have, have passed from uh, World Trade Center illnesses. Of course, we do remember um, the the major, uh, I don't know how to describe the betrayal of the public interest when the EPA said the air was safe to breathe under Mayor Giuliani. Mm -hmm. But to back to your question about this, the moment in time, it is it, it, it is a kind of uh, important crossroads for the department. Um, it's uh, important to also mention that um, Nigro came up through the ranks. It's believed that he held every position on the firefighting side that you could hold, uh, except maybe the Marine Division. And that, um, you know, it is. Was he liked uh, by the union? I, I would say generally, yes. I, I would say that um, one of the things that, um, you know, we've had the experience of like we had uh, Commissioner Scapetta. So there's some there was, there's some history of, of non firefighters being in that. But the big challenge that came on Nigro's watch was in 2014 when Mayor de Plasio decided to do the right thing and reach a universal settlement with the Vulcan Society, um, the African-American fraternal organization that represents fire department employees, had successfully documented 
to the satisfaction of the Bush administration, talk about a high bar, that the city of New York was engaged in systemic racial discrimination. And so <clears throat> there was something like 3% of the uh, off, uh, firefighters were um, were African-American, and it was clear they made their proofs. And so eventually the city settled in universal settlement for some $93 million. And then uh, Judge Garifus in Brooklyn, uh, um, Eastern District was put in charge of like a special master situation. And yet throughout Nigro's tenure, he was haunted by real scandalous developments with all kinds of race-based hazing, um, all kinds of crazy stuff on social media. Um, and he, he really, it was hard for him, you know, at the top, they were signaling change and they did improve the recruitment. So the numbers are, while not as diverse as, as the uh, police department, which went through a number of classes where now a majority of incoming police officers are, are people of color. So they've made that turn. This police department reflects the city of New York. But the fire department still has a way to go. And, and Nigro, despite his you know, kind of charismatic and charming personality, had a hard time getting the, uh, the hierarchy, primarily the might wheel, right mill hierarchy, to, to change course. And so that's been a challenge. And so... That's kind of an unfinished piece of of his legacy. It's also said that the fire department, you know, um, one of the fire union guys said to me, you know, when the when the police department wants money, you know, they they ask for 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 ten dollars, they get 20. When the fire department asks for five, they get three and they make do with it because the place has been run by Catholic Gill for the last 150 years. That there's some truth to that. Um, They they. one of the things that happens all the time is that um, there's constant cost pressures. We see them cutting back the number of firefighters on engines. And this is something that civilians don't necessarily notice, but it does show up. Was that a factor uh, in the case of the Bronx Fire? Uniformed Firefighters Association President Andy Ansborough uh, said a contributing factor to the high death toll, which was the worst in the city since the 1990 Happy Land fire killed 87 people in the Bronx Social Club, was the fire department's decision a week earlier to reduce staffing from fire, five firefighters to four on 20 engine companies, which slowed their ability to effectively respond and get water to the, uh, onto the blaze. So, so it's in talking to a lot of people, it was it's hard to know. This is what we call a retrospective hypothetical. Mm. Just for background, so folks understand, um, historically, this back in the day, that was the standard, right? And so that makes a difference when you first arrive at a fire and you're unraveling hose, you're securing the scene. Um, if you lose a fifth person, that's 20%. And there's a certain kind of synergy that happens. You know, the old phrase, many hands make light work. In this case, um, the, what happened was under the leadership of UFA President Cassidy, uh, under the Bloomberg years, he really hated the civil service. He did a lot of damage. A lot of our problems come out of his real resentment and hostility to public workers. It endures to this day. Um, the fire union managed to come up with this crazy deal where as long as they kept sick time at 7.5%, 7, 7. just think about this. 7.5%, as long as the roster of people that were out sick or injured didn't go above 7.5, they could have what they always used to have, five firefighters on 20 engines. Now, whose interest is it to make sure that firefighters <clears throat> are have sufficient number to do the job? Well, it's the public, of course. 
And of course, it's the firefighters who have, if they have capable and competent and sufficient help, have a better chance of surviving the fire. So Bloomberg made them negotiate that back. And so, but I have to tell you that the overall decrepit state of the building, and firefighters will tell you this, the overall, um, the, the ability of great wealth in this city to hold these investment properties that ironically are often funded and the value of them is that they're Section 8 federal money, money you can take to the bank, Leonard. The fact that we let them be in this decrepit state where people are having to use space heaters is a crime against humanity. Yeah. So while while it, this may be a contributing factor, disinvestment in fire safety, the overall disregard for humanity reflected in a captive regulator. I mean, the reality is that our agencies are captive to the real estate industry. And that's the problem. And it's echoing in what happened in Philadelphia. You saw a housing authority there, tragic loss of, of a family. We see it in Baltimore, where a vacant building was permitted to stand a zombie home since 2010. Since 2010. And so I call it a crime against humanity because not only did three firefighters die with all that idealism that I described earlier, but it stood in a community where homelessness and and shelter insecurity is a major priority. And at the same time, we're in a country that just can't build back better. Yeah. Let's focus on Joe Manchin. Let's give him a little more. I mean, the problem with build back better is it was so general. What they need to do is focus on the, the decrepit structures on your block. That's the problem, right. I think, is that we need to connect these problems that you're flagging with a national agenda. And it's not happening. So are you the only uh political commentator who thinks Joe Manchin is not a major problem. <laughs> I would say it's not that he's not a major problem, but the fact that we give him so much ink yeah. reinforces his power. And so that, to me, the fact that reporters are spending all this time chasing him and they report the Beltway as this, without the misappropriation of priorities and the brutality of late-stage vulture capitalism just doesn't come through the day-to-day TikTok and MSNBC. It just doesn't. It does. Occasionally, you get some great reporting on the border, and there are some lighted moments. But generally, it's just all fine. My guest is Bob Henley. Uh, I've been telling you that, uh, among other things, he's written a new book called Stuck Nation, Can the United States Change Course on Our History of Choosing Profits Over People? published by Democracy at Work. Uh, he is a regular on this station. He has a, a morning show on this station uh, and also um, writes for the chief leader, Salon, and other publications. This is WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. Uh, Bob, it's hard to believe, but we have spent uh, over 45 minutes already discussing uh, the current situation and uh, the the word coronavirus has not come up. <clears throat> exactly. Uh, yeah, I mean, I guess I think it did a little bit. We did mention pandemic. So I did uh, the opening. But right. the deaths of a, of a firefighter and a police officer from the coronavirus over a 48-hour period from January 18th to the 19th came as Governor Hochul and, uh, and Mayor Adams talked about a big drop in uh, Omicron cases as proof that New York has weathered the winter surge. So is New York weathering the winter surge? We still have thousands and thousands of people uh, entering the hospitals every day. Well, I, I think that what we've seen here is the marketing of Omicron. It's a mild, lighter virus. It makes you feel better. Mm -hmm. See, one of the things we've had 
is when government fails spectacularly, what they do is they reframe what success looks like. And that's what we've been seeing here. So you had this ability um, for the government to make these requirements. Uh, people would do X, Y, and Z, and then they would have a result. That has not happened. And commerce must go on, Leonard. You know that. You've just got to continue to get out there and have those people do the work they need to do. And we're going to learn to live with it. Now, the only problem is that that is that whole way that's perceived is what I will call the managerial remote workforce consciousness. Those are the people that describe the events to you because they're not going to help anyone in particular. They're not putting anyone in an ambulance and they're certainly not repairing a road. So for those people, the people I write for, they're in a more marginal position than ever before. Let's review, shall we? Uh, they were told to be vaccinated. They got vaccinated. They were told to get boosted and they got boosted. Now they still have a situation where if they have their grandchild who's under five or their child that's under five or their elderly parent who can't have the vaccine for any host of actually certified medical reasons, they risk getting them sick and having them die. And no hazard pay. That's just part of being part of making the city move forward. We'll bang a pot for you. You feel better now? <laughs> And it's a big issue in the courts. Uh, New York State judge just ruled uh, the other day that the state's ma mask mandate had been enacted unlawfully, was now void. Uh, but then uh, it was reinstated by another judge. So we're, we're, we're seeing warring uh, uh, judicial decisions. Uh, and unions and public health advocates were sharply critical of the Supreme Court's January 13 rejection of the Biden administration's requirement that private firms with 100 or more employees require them to be vaccinated or submit to weekly coronavirus testing. Well, so what's curious about that, and by the way, the Biden administration, it's been a busy news cycle for them. They also withdrew that rule recently. I'm working on that story now. Um, they withdrew that rule. What, what's curious here is that throughout this whole tri tribulation, workers' well-being just did not matter. And so that's the problem here. We still, as we speak, do not know how many essential workers died. We, we don't know how many, um, although I think it's probably in the mm, figure, it's a tens of thousands, maybe even higher, are going to be permanently disabled. So really imagine um, that the United States is like lower Manhattan, say, two years after 9-11, where there are thousands and thousands of people who serve the country and protected and served and maybe walking around with a life altering disease. Hmm. Do you think anyone wants to know who they are? Do you think anyone wants to take an inventory? No, what's happening is in all 50 states, they're going into worker comp court where their claims are being fought by the same employers that they were employed by. Now, we have practically no time left 
I had wanted to talk about uh, the, uh, the the vacating of the convictions of two men who were wrongfully convicted for the murder of uh, Malcolm X in 1965. Wow. I wanted to talk about the Supreme Court's uh, taking on an affirmative action case. And also, I was wondering what you thought about Mark Cuban's company, Cross Plus Drugs, um, an online pharmacy uh, announcing that it's going to offer 100 generic drugs at lower prices. Uh, well, I suppose that uh, this is like a Minnesota fast pool shot, right? Uh, <laughs> I don't think I can address them all in one pithy like no. paragraph. No. Uh, but I, I would certainly say, say what you want to say. <laughs> sure. Thank you. Um, on the on the Malcolm X front, I do think it's important to continue the drumbeat uh, of full more full disclosure. One of the things that um, you know that we have to get is whatever documents the city of New York has about that period of time where the NYPD was clearly complicit with the FBI in framing up, and there's no other way to put it, the individuals that spent uh, decades in jail uh, for killing Malcolm X when they did not. And for those folks who, who were like, you know, on another planet and missed the story, the long and the short of it is that D.A. Vance, towards the end of his tenure, went into a court and explained to a judge that he needed to vacate these two convictions because he had proven to himself and, and to history J. Edgar Hoover uh, told the material witnesses uh, to not tell the court or, or, you know, to come forward. And even because they were actually FBI agents hmm. um, who would act as like, you know, assets, if you will, as confidential informants. So there's no doubt that the, the FBI had a very deep, deep, deep knowledge about what was going on. And there's just really been no accounting for that. I mean, it is disturbing that and that's why I say less Joe Manchin, more following up this kind of story. That this didn't come up at a Department of Justice briefing. Like, could mm-hmm. someone say, "Oh, by the way, I know America busy with the insurrection, but let's dial it back. I'll take uh, COINTELPRO for five hundred dollars." Like, the lack of curiosity by our national media on this is disturbing. That's why BAI really matters. And there have been any number of cases of people wrongfully convicted. Uh, uh, usually, uh, race has play, been a factor, hasn't right. it? Uh, yeah. Now, uh, unfortunately, uh, we've come to kind of the end of the show, but um, I hope that you will con- just jump in whenever you want to. Uh, <laughs> as I uh, talk to our listeners about uh, supporting this station, um, so yeah, this is something you've been doing for a long time. You you've been in public radio almost as long as I have, haven't you? Uh, I guess. Yeah. I mean, I was uh, I was at the Hudson Dispatch in Village Voice, and then I remember that the Village Voice, if I really bothered John Larson, they'd give you an extra hundred dollars if you showed up on the radio. <laughs> and so we were uh, in the process of starting our family, and I just had to work, work, work all the time. So the idea that's how I got on the radio. Yeah. Well, I I've... found out. Yeah, I, I started doing uh, shows on WBAI uh, in 1977, and I was not paid. Uh, I did that for eight years, uh, and every Monday night, and I did a gospel show for a number of years. But, Praise me. But I, I believed in this station, and I still believe in this station. And if um, if some of my listeners are new to this program and like what they've been hearing, they can access past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. You can also hear any of of uh, Bob's shows. Can, um, I, can I tell you that? Can we do a little commercial? Did you not make a break the one million download? Is that true? I have uh, 
had more than it's been. In, we've been informed that I've had more than one million downloads on this show, uh, which would suggest that people are starting to listen uh, and uh, want to hear more. Uh, and we are also we're available on iTunes, Spotify, and uh, and everywhere that podcasts are available, leading to those downloads. Um, <laughs> so, um, if you, uh, and on top of it all, if you'd like to write to me, uh, my email address here at WBAI is leonardlopate at WBAI.org. As Bob and I were discussing earlier, BAI is currently experiencing major financial difficulties during the pandemic, so we're asking anyone who isn't already supporting the station to go online to give to WBAI.org or to call 212 uh, Two uh six wait two one two two zero nine right two zero nine two nine five zero and if right. you call in with a a, a, a contribution of seventy five dollars or more Bob has uh has uh, generously offered to give what the first how many people who call five. in? We got five. We got free five copies. Five copies. The first five right. people to call in That's for right. seventy five dollars right. or more. Will receive. I'll even autograph it at no extra charge, and I will take my little self and walk down to the post office and mail it to you personally. <laughs> what more can you ask? Uh, on top, it's a great book. On top of it all, I think the WBAI, which is uh, unique on the New York dial because it is 100% uh, supported only by its listeners, is uh, an important station to keep going uh if you can you can you by the way you can become a sustaining member for ten dollars or more 10 15 20 whatever uh, a bai buddy be a buddy yes yeah, we call it bai on. buddies um i i like the words sustaining members but either I know, one it is sounds fine. Very, it's very uptown but, you know, like, <laughs> a sustaining member bi buddy you know that's like that's that kind of voice but again the number one more time is uh Oh, boy, I'm so messed up here. 212-209-2950. Go online to, to give to WBAI.org. And we hope you'll join us again tomorrow when privacy law expert Neil Richards will discuss his new book, Why Privacy Matters. And we'll see you then. And thank you, Bob. Thank you so much. Another chapter of Masterpiece Theater. <laughs>